My name is Stephen. I get to be one of the pastors around here, and I am so excited to be with you all today. Golly, we have so much fun stuff going on this summer, don't we? From uh, the summer camp this last week with uh, students, Johnny is alive, and <laughs> so that's always good, or uh, two weeks ago, and then um, he made it through alive. I remember those days, and it is exhausting, so if you haven't been through it, it is a miracle that he's still up and with us right now. Um, next week, we'll say the same thing about Heather Brown because VBS, Summer Adventure, golly, there is a lot that goes into that. It is an exciting time. But like I said, my name's Steven, and there's one thing about me that uh, some of my close friends know, and that's that I love a good before and after DIY pick. I just, does this make anyone else just feel good? Look at that old, shall I say dumpy? Can I call a house dumpy from up here? But an old dumpy house. And it is completely and radically transformed. Here's another one, another DIY. Just look at that. They couldn't straighten the stop sign. I don't understand that, but <laughs> that's up to the city. So. But look at that transformation. There's just something that makes me feel good when I see that. Here's another one that might hit some of you right in the heart. Does anyone see what that is? A little bit of carpet, before and after carpet pictures. Uh, who, who, who's the, who are the vacuumers here? Does anyone vacuum their house? I see a few hands. I absolutely love vacuuming. Oh my goodness, it is so fun. And that's like the one chore that I actually enjoy doing. Now, as ridiculous as it sounds, I really do enjoy it because you can see, look, look at that. Those are some beautiful lines. It's like mowing your lawn. You just see those lines like Angel Stadium. Oh, it just feels good. Before it's all gross and gnarly and then, oh, vacuum everything up, get some good lines in there. Oh, it's just a delight to see. Here's another fun one, before and after. This last couple weeks, I don't know if you guys noticed, but we now have a new ceiling in here, some, uh, some patched holes. Uh, Chris Johansson and his team uh, brought some people in to get that, uh, the, the, some issues with our ceiling fixed. And so here's some scaffolding before and after is right here. If you look around, you'll see the ceiling. It is nice and clean and more to come this summer. We're so excited about it, but before and after. Here's a fun one, a little known fact. Uh, my wife and I converted a camper van and drove around. I know I talk about that every single time I'm up here, but we converted a camper van. Is anyone judging me right now because of the color of my tools? I see that there are a few of you that are very, yes. I have no shame in saying I'm a, I'm a Ryobi man. And uh, if you don't know what that is, ask, ask your husbands or some other guy in your life. Uh, we converted it. That's the before pick. It came with four rows of seats. And then after, it looked a little bit like this. And golly, that was a fun thing to do before and after. We made it livable. Some of you say, that is not livable. <laughs> My wife would agree, so that's why we live in a home now. <laughs> but we had a good time doing that. Here's, a, here's another fun one. A family of three is transformed into a family of four. And we look a little more different. And we are so excited about that. But how much more exciting is it? How much more thrilling is it when you see the before and afters of homes and of vans, <laughs> DIY camper vans, and of carpet? How much more exciting is it when it's a human? When it's a human who's been transformed and changed by the goodness of God? How much more awe-inspiring and grand and all those big words that we ascribe to God, the big, uh, they're simple words, but all those big meaning words that we ascribe to God, how much more thrilling and invigorating and exciting is it when we see God radically transform a human? That's the change we're talking about today. Our big idea is gonna be this. No one, no one, no one that you know, no one that has ever walked this earth is too far from God's transforming power. We get it here in the text in Acts chapter nine. That is where this series has brought us to 
I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in and read some of this text. It's a big chunk, so we're going to summarize some of it, but we're going to read, uh, read after we pray. So God, thank you so much for being good to us. Thank you for all the good things that you're doing in our lives, around this church, around this community. God, thank you for just dumping joy upon joy and grace upon grace upon each and every one of us. God, thank you that you are so big and powerful that you can transform anyone. God, encourage us today, point us to you today, and help us find a greater joy in you, who you are, and what you can do in those around us, and in our lives ourselves. Pray this all for your glory and for our joy. Amen. So here's the text. We start in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Saul. We heard this name a couple weeks back, uh, last week, at the stoning of Stephen. Now, I'm going to do my best to call him Saul. There's a tension there because his Hebrew name is Saul, but his Greek name, as we know, is, does anyone know it? Paul. He turned into a person who wrote a significant piece of the New Testament. So Saul and Paul, same guy, Hebrew name, Greek name. I'm going to do my best to keep calling him Saul, just so we're all on the same page, so we're clear. But if I say Paul, please don't harass me for it after and say, I knew it, you said Paul. Because that is a guy who, uh, all the books he wrote in the New Testament, he calls himself Paul. And so the same guy, this is his story of how uh, God radically rescued him. It says, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Ugh. This is not really a guy that we want hanging out in children's ministry. <laughs> this is not a guy we want hanging out in VBS. Here's last week's text. It says this in the end of chapter 7 when Stephen was stoned. And they were stoning Stephen. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against him. And then he died. And Saul approved of this execution. Saul's standing there at the stoning of Stephen, approving of the execution of Stephen, celebrating it. We don't know if he was there at the crucifixion. The Bible doesn't really tell us, but I would, I would imagine he probably would have approved of that as well. So again, Luke does not paint a very positive thrilling picture of this guy. He's not the, 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 the cream of the crop necessarily. And so he's approving of the execution. The church is scattered to Judea and Samaria, verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then back to our text. Oh, in case you couldn't tell, he's a bad guy. So <laughs> I just wanted to put that in there because I think it might be a little helpful for some of us. He's not a great dude. He's a bad guy again. Not the guy we want serving at Summer Adventure. Not the guy you want in student ministries helping lead. Not a guy you want to be associated with. Not a guy you want to be uh, present in your church as he's actively trying to persecute and attack and destroy and wreak havoc among. He's not a great dude. Uh, Luke goes to great lengths to make it very clear. This is not a nice, friendly man. This is the leader of Al-Qaeda. This is the leader of ISIS. This is the worst of the worst who's coming against the church. This is the people who are going to the underground churches and getting ready to just slaughter and execute anyone who professes the name of Jesus. This is not a guy that you tell you're a Christian to if you're not very confident in your faith. This is not a guy you go out promoting right in front of him because he's going to do whatever he can to squash all the momentum you can build. So he's a bad guy no matter our condition, though. The beauty of this passage, the beauty of Acts chapter 9 is this, that no matter how far we seem from God, God's power can save us. Saul himself is going to be saved by God. No matter our condition, God can save us. He saved Saul, changing the direction of his life. Again, from the past couple weeks, we've been seeing this picture of Saul 
He is not going down the direction that we would want our kids to follow necessarily. Is that fair to say? He's not going down the direction that we celebrate. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Essentially, he gets orders from, from the high priest himself to say, go wreak havoc. This is supported by the early church. This is supported by the, the high priest at the time who says, yep, Saul, go for it. Go do the work that we need to do. We need to squelch these people. We remember in the end of the Gospels, there's a, an, uh, a revival. Uh, there's a good thing going. They're spreading of the church. And then Acts chapter 1, it just goes crazy. Chapter 2, it continues on. And this church is building momentum. There are good things happening but we need to stop it, Saul. Saul, this is not okay. We need to squelch it. And so Saul's biggest mission, Saul's biggest direction in life, he's trying to destroy what God is doing. Again, he does not paint, Luke does not paint a very good picture for Saul. Luke is intentionally painting a picture of us so that we understand this guy is so far, only good things can happen. Now, I like to think that I'm fairly good with directions and destinations and figuring out where I'm going. My father-in-law over here would completely disagree with me. Uh, as he's seen me get lost on ski resort lifts more than a time or two. But I don't see this ever happening in my life. I don't think I would ever do this kind of thing. It says, Hawaii tourists follow GPS into water, sink van, just like in the office. <laughs> Anyone else see the office? Michael Scott? The machine knows, Dwight. I know where I'm going. It says, in true Michael Scott fashion, two Hawaii tourists followed the GPS right into the water. <laughs> this is on the big island of Hawaii. Then later on, a month later to the day, Hawaii tourists follow GPS into harbor water again. <laughs> Literally a month to the day, they're driving straight into the water. And if you haven't seen The Office, they have a great depiction of this, so you should look it out, check it out on YouTube. But people are visiting Hawaii, they have no idea where they're going, and they drive straight into the harbor twice. Van is destroyed, vehicle is destroyed. They all made it out alive, so I think it's, okay, it's appropriate to laugh a little bit because they're all fine, they're totally fine. They actually had time to go back and turn their windshield wipers off, the article says. <laughs> so, but in a similar way, in a similar way, Paul was destined for destruction. The direction he was going in his life, the direction he was going in his life was not upward and onward. It was not positive, it was not sunshine, it was not good things, it was, he was driving into a lake. He was driving into the harbor. He was destined for destruction. It doesn't look too good for Saul. And candidly, it doesn't look too good for the early church either because this guy is a powerful persecutor. He's got a lot of power and he is on a mission. It says this in verse three, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. God intervenes. God intervenes in incredible, miraculous, stellar ways. This guy whose entire purpose, his entire direction is to bring destruction, and he himself is going to end in destruction as well. God intervenes. And it is so miraculous the way he does it, with blinding light. It's almost as if God's stopping him, giving him an opportunity to reevaluate his entire theology. 
Saul tells us later on in the book of Philippians that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Again, he, was a, a Hebrew, he had a Greek name and a Hebrew name. He was a little bit of both. He was Hebrew and Greek. So he had education from Jewish schools. He had Greek education. This guy's brilliant thinker. He's, he knows scriptures inside and out. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he calls himself, meaning he was a top dog who knew the scriptures inside and out, but he misunderstood it. He misinterpreted it. So it's almost like God here gives him a chance to think. It's a six days journey from where he's going to Damascus. On the road to Damascus, he's stopped halfway through and he's knocked to the ground. Can't see a thing. Encounters Jesus. Pretty incredible. It's not necessarily how I came to faith, but, but it's pretty incredible to see that God is going to great lengths to rescue even the farthest from him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's it's also almost like Jesus is coming alongside the early church saying, I'm with you in this. And he says the same today. I'm with you even today. It's, it's collaborative. It's, uh, collaborative is the wrong word, but it's, it's, it's God is being with us. He's, he's in it with us. He's in our problems. He's in the persecution with us. He's in all of the issues in our world today. It often feels like God's so distant. But even here, as the early church is spreading, God's saying, I'm right there. If you're persecuting my people, if you're persecuting my church, you're persecuting me. And so he comes alongside his early church, this is Jesus, and then he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Where are you? Or sorry, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. Uh, the commentaries pretty much agree that when he says, who are you, Lord? I, at first time I read that, you, you see Lord, and you're like, oh, cool, it's a profession of faith. He's already coming to faith right there. But in reality, I don't think that's necessarily what he's saying here. I think uh, a lot of the commentaries actually agreed. It's just a step above saying, sir, who are you, sir? Good to meet you. It's like a step above being respectful, which I think is easy to understand when you think about how he just got knocked to the ground by a blinding light and heard a voice from heaven. Something crazy just happened. Booming voices. I think it's probably safe to say, like, whoa, something bigger and powerful is at play here. So he says, who are you, Lord? And he encounters Jesus. I'm Jesus. You're after my people. You're after me. Time to change. And so they, he has this encounter with the risen Jesus. And what happens from there? Now there's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. See the difference? Who are you, Lord? Here I am, Lord. Ananias was a guy who uh, allegedly had uh, an awareness of who God is. He was a disciple at Damascus. He, the text actually tells us he was part of the community, part of the church in Damascus. And so when God speaks to him and says, you're going to find Saul, he answers, I'm ready. I'm going to see. We're going to get back to that because there's a lot that goes on with that interaction with Ananias and Saul and God. But, but right here, here I am. I'm ready. What do you have for me? Versus who are you? What is going on? What is this weird experience? So then it continues on the text, but verse 15, but the Lord said to him, this is Ananias, go, go to Saul, go find Saul. He's blind, he doesn't know what he's doing, he's praying, go find Saul. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he was rose and was baptized. God saved Saul. 
in a miraculous way. God went to great lengths to save Saul. Scales falling off his eyes, something like scale, weird, gross stuff happens in his eyes or now he can see, and it's just a wild experience. Again, one that I am not familiar with necessarily, but what an incredible way God has chosen to move in the life of Saul. God saved Saul, changing his ultimate direction in life. And what we can take from that is that God can save us, even from the darkest of places. I know for me, I grew up in the church. I did not have a Saul-like conversion. I didn't have a gutter conversion, street side gutter or sidewalk gutter conversion. I grew up in the church. I was pretty much a pretty good kid for most of my life. My parents are here. I think they would agree. I was a pretty good kid. I didn't get in a lot of trouble. But while I was at Biola learning how to study theology, while I was in college trying to figure out how to be a pastor and studying and reading a bunch of old dead guys who would talk about church and talk about the Bible, and, and while I'm reading about all these things, I get connected to a church called Richfield Community Church. This is back in 2013. Maybe you guys have heard of it. And I uh, got connected with a guy named David Bartosik, who happens to be in the, in the room with us today. And, and just spending time with him, he challenged me on my theology over and over and over until I realized just like Saul, I had theology. I wasn't persecuting Christians, as far as I know. I don't think I was. I wasn't persecuting Christians. I wasn't on a mission to stop the church and to squelch the church and to destroy the mission of God. I wasn't on a mission for that, but I was a guy who thought he had pretty good theology who just misunderstood, who just didn't quite get it. And so conversation after conversation after conversation of being pressed to think more about who Jesus is, I eventually came to a point, I don't know, somewhere in that process, I came to a point where I actually treasured Jesus rather than being a good kid who knew a lot of theology stuff. My life had been transformed. My life was changed. And it made Ephesians 2 all the better. This is also the words of Paul, Saul, Paul, where he says, you are dead in your trespasses. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. How much more beautiful is it to know that we were dead in our trespasses, but God, but God intervened on our behalf. Just like Saul is on a mission to persecute Christians, he's going down the direction of death and destruction, and God intervenes and radically transforms it. I also, even though I was a good kid, was on the path of death and destruction until God intervened, and God, who is rich in mercy, saved me. Maybe your story is somewhere between Saul's and mine. Good kid raised in the church, Maybe you are new to the church. Maybe your story has a lot of unique intricacies to it. But as we look at this text of God radically saving Saul, making him new in Jesus, I think a lot of our temptation is to, to, to have a takeaway of there are bad people out there who God can save, so I want to just go out. And that is absolutely an application of this text. But where this text hit me, I was dead. I was a good kid. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and God saved me. How good is our God? Who saves the people who are far off, even when they don't look like they're far off. And maybe you align with that story. Maybe you align more with Saul. Maybe you align again somewhere else. Maybe you're still figuring this stuff out. Maybe you're still thinking about faith in general and trying to decide, is this even worth it? You're living in death right now. What I think this text encourages us to do is just meditate more on the goodness of God. Meditate more on how good and powerful 
and the limitless God is in his relentless pursuit to even those who are farthest from him. It's just blaring in this text, the goodness of God in pursuing even the worst of enemies of the church. Who I was. Good kid. Said the right things. It was me. So that hits me here. No matter our condition, God can save us. No matter our condition, God doesn't stop at saving us. Notice Saul is not just done. He's not just done with Saul. Okay, we corrected your trajectory. You are no longer going to persecute the end. No, he changes our, con- uh, he, he, he changes our actual purpose. He uses us by changing our purpose. God gave Saul a brand new purpose in life. Just like he changed his direction, he now gives him a brand new purpose. It says this in verse 15, but, he, but, he, uh, but the Lord said to him, this is Ananias, He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The purpose of Saul, previously, when he was on the road to Damascus, he went to the high priest again, got the the papers so that he could go to the synagogues for the purpose of destruction. Saul is now going to continue and actually still go to the synagogues, but for a wildly different purpose. He's going to still go to people. He's still going to Christians. He's still going to the church. He's still going to wherever he can find people, still on the road to Damascus, still going in the same direction, but a wildly different purpose. And the wildly different purpose is this. God chose him to carry his name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Oof. Immediately. Something like scales fell and he was baptized. God saves him and immediately he's baptized and immediately he preached and proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Saying what? He said he is the son of God. He still goes to the synagogues, but he's doing something wildly different. Instead of binding the Christians and taking them back and probably killing a few along the way, he's now preaching Jesus, doing essentially the same thing, the same big picture thing he's doing, going to the synagogues, finding Christians, but instead... He's preaching Jesus. 21, all who heard him were amazed, said, isn't this the guy who's wreaking havoc? Isn't this the, the, the bad guy that, that we don't want around our children's ministry? Isn't this the bad guy that we don't hang, want hanging around us? This is the guy, is he, is this a Trojan horse thing? Like, what's going on here? Why is he in here? And so they don't want to accept him immediately, and, he is, and has, not he, uh, has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound to the chief priests? We know who this guy is. Isn't he here to destroy us? But God changed his purpose. God changed his mission. God changed his purpose. God has plans to use him. But Saul increased all the more in strength. He's getting jacked and confounded by the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The Jews are now getting bamboozled because they're trying to figure out, isn't this the guy who hates us? Isn't this the guy who's against us? But instead... Instead, he's here actually convincing people. He's actually convincing people that Jesus is the way. Paul was going down his own way, looking for people who were of the way, the way, the truth, and the life, walking down the way to life and to Jesus, and now his way has been corrected. He's preaching Jesus. What a wild thing. God said, I want to use him, and immediately he gets baptized, immediately he starts preaching. It's like he couldn't help it. He encounters Jesus. His life is radically changed. God saves him, and he goes on preaching Jesus immediately. Like he couldn't help it. He now goes. Here was Saul's old purpose, to ravage the church, to wreak havoc, 
and to bind and kill followers of the way. Hmm. But God gave him a new purpose, to preach that Jesus is the Son of God and to win Gentiles over to the way. Just wild to me, the transformation. Ravage the church versus encourage the church. Wreak havoc versus wreak havoc on people who are opposing the church by confounding them and uh, uh, tripping them up in the words and just debating them and having educated conversation. Again, a guy who knew the scriptures inside and out and now saw Jesus in them and he is just having a field day with people in the synagogues who are missing Jesus as well. He would bind and kill followers, now he's winning them over. What a wild thing. What a wild thing. No matter our condition, God can use us. God gave Saul a new purpose, but it wasn't without resistance. I think it's fun to look at these stories and say, and it was all sunshine and daisies after that. And it was all rainbows and unicorns, and he got to go on his way and, and have a good life, and boom, that, that's the rest of his history. He wrote a bunch of books, and here we are. We celebrate him. But no, I think Luke does not hold back on showing the struggles that happened. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. And the Jews plotted to kill him. His own team, his former old team, he was their biggest cheerleader. He was their biggest warrior. We're going to follow Saul. We're going to go with him. We're going to destroy that, that early church. We're going to get these people to think better. They're going to, we're, going to, we're going to encourage them to look uh, a completely different way. We're going to destroy them. We're going to dismantle them. And this, this uprising will be done. The church will be over. And they will come back to their senses. But instead, Saul says, no, not on your team anymore. I met Jesus. I met the Son of God. And immediately they want to kill him. So the Jews are watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Ugh. And then he's talking to the Hellenists. They were seeking to kill him. Everyone wants this guy dead now. The guy who was actually trying to persecute the church, the guy who was trying to kill Christians, is now the one being hunted by the Jews and the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews alike. Saul was a Jew and Greek. His own people hate him. Golly. So in Saul's recent life history, it's pretty wild. He was persecuting the church. He encounters Jesus. He goes blind. He meets Ananias. He can see again. He gets baptized. He preaches Jesus. Then Jews want him dead. Saul runs for his life. He preaches Jesus while he's running for his life. The Hellenists want him dead. Saul runs for his life. And then he's off to Caesarea and Tarsus. And we don't hear about Saul again for another couple chapters. That's the story for Saul for now. A guy who was persecuting the church, the chief persecutor. And now God saves him, changes his direction, and sets him off to the races to go bring the gospel to Judea and Samaria, Caesarea, Tarsus. God chose him to be the, the instrument that brings the gospel to the Greeks. And he's off to the races. What a wild story. What a wild transformation. When God saves Saul, he gave him a new purpose. When God saves us, he gives us a new purpose. I think of it like this. Uh, little known facts, we have a camper van. And uh, <laughs> oftentimes, I will have friends reach out who say, hey, I want to do this van life thing. I want to go on a crazy adventure. I want to build out my van. I want to build out the back of my truck. What is it? And so they, they say, what are the things I need 
to buy? What do I, what do I need to, to, to go collect so that I can actually build this thing out? And so this is just the electrical components of it. If you don't recognize it, that's totally fine because that's just a lot of stuff up there. But you need water pumps, you need uh, solar panels, you need electricity, you need batteries, you need all these different things. You need cables, you need lights, you need all, tons of stuff that you need in order to make a camper van work. Um, and some of you actually I know who have camper vans are like, oh yeah, there's a lot going on in there. Yeah, they're really complex. And so inevitably, I'll send them a list and the conversation will continue. We're talking about what they need to buy, what they need to install, what's most productive, what do you need, what do you not need, that's overrated, buy that, you definitely need it. And then eventually the conversation dies down and a few weeks later I get a picture similar to this. Uh, sometimes it's in a dusty bucket, actually, a dusty bin. And it's people saying, all right, so I bought everything, what do I do now? <laughs> And uh, that is exactly where I was. I'm so thankful for the people who helped me build this stuff because I had no idea, but what do I do with it? I think in a lot of cases, we look at our lives. God saved me. I bought this stuff. I'm good. The stuff, it's, it's in my garage. I have it. I've acquired it. I'm good. Put it on a bin. Put it on the shelf. Ah, I did it. But that's completely useless. Without being put together, without being in the right hands, this stuff is completely meaningless. This stuff is completely useless. It does absolutely no good just sitting there on a table. That's actually on a hardwood floor inside a van. My van has hardwood floors too, so I'm pretty proud of that. But it just sits there collecting dust. And actually in this photo, it looks like this stuff's pretty dusty. Until it's put in the right hands. Until it comes together. Until it's actually being used. These things are completely useless. I think that's the way we approach our faith often is, all right, I'm good, I got this stuff, I'm gonna put it on the shelf. What good is that? We just collect things that, we just put them around and they just collect dust. Now, I'm ashamed to admit I have more things in my garage collecting dust that don't get used than I would like, but when it comes together, I think that's where the magic happens. What's the point in having it if you're not going to do anything with it? I think a lot of the times in our lives, we like to come to faith and then sit on the sidelines. We like to say we came to faith. We like to align with the right theology, but stay on the sidelines, stay in the pews, not participate. And that is not at all what God did with Saul. Immediately, he was preaching Jesus. And there was tension but immediately he preached Jesus. And as he went and ran for his life, he preached Jesus. Maybe you're looking for a way to connect. Maybe you're looking for a way to get involved around here and not be on the sidelines anymore because again, a participant and a sideline fan are two different things. But someone who's participating in the faith, when God has changed your purpose, your purpose actually does change. You don't continue on the same. And so as we look at this stuff, just collecting dust. It made me reflect, how am I participating? What am I doing? I, I intentionally spend my mornings with guys who do not trust Jesus. It has influenced the way, this uh, sharing the joy series that we did in January, where we get the joy, now we go share it. The R1, R2, R3, we have our relationship with God. R2, our relationship with those who trust Jesus. And R3, relationship number three, relationship with those yet to believe. I'm intentionally creating spaces where I can find our three relationships. Maybe that's a challenge for you as well. Where can you go? What are your hobbies where you can encourage and meet other people who are yet to meet Jesus? Who they themselves 
may be collecting dust. Maybe there's someone who just needs a little bit of encouragement because they actually get who Jesus is, but they're kind of missing him. Maybe it's someone who doesn't have the bucket collecting dust yet at all. Maybe it's someone who is still figuring out who Jesus is. But what does it look like in your life to get involved? To enjoy those R3 relationships where you're intentionally spending time with people yet to trust Jesus for the hope that they are happier tomorrow than they were today because they've encountered someone who is the greatest source of happiness. <laughs> All good, Angel. <laughs> we're good? <laughs> She's good, everyone. What does that look like in your life? I think around here, I'm sure Heather could use more volunteers for summer adventure. <laughs> I'm sure mopettes and mops could use people who are retired and have nothing else to do on a Tuesday afternoon to hold some babies. I'm sure Johnny could use some more student ministries leaders, although y'all are killing it. Good job. People who want to lead a life group, people who want to participate in a life group. There are so many things going on around here. Again, summer's just a powerhouse full of stuff that's going on, opportunities for people to get connected to a smaller group of people and be encouraged to love Jesus. Not collecting dust, not sitting on the sidelines, opportunities to preach Jesus with your life, with how you live, with your words, what you talk about, what you talk about that you love. We talk about the things that we love. Saul's transformation challenges me. How strategic am I being with where I share my faith? How am I doing that? How naturally does it come out of me? It's a challenge to me. When God saves us, he gives us a new purpose. And he uses us to impact others. There's a guy we skipped over in this story mostly, Ananias. Now, last week, uh, a couple weeks ago, Keith Gove was preaching, and Ananias died. So <laughs> this is a different Ananias. This is not Ananias and Sapphira Ananias, uh, who lied about how much they gave to the church. This is a different Ananias. Does anyone know two people named John? Like, it's kind of like that. Like, it's okay to have two Ananiases and two Johns. Um, God uses us with a different Ananias to impact others. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him, Ananias, he said, here I am. The Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. What's he praying about? We don't know, but he's blind, uh, just had a wild thing. Uh, he's, hopefully, he's praying, processing. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us, but hopefully, he's trying to figure out what on earth just happened. And then verse 13 says this, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done uh, to your saints at Jerusalem. Are you sure, God? I know who this guy is. Are you sure about that? Is that really the right move? And here he has authority from the chief priest to go bind all who call upon your name. Go, God says. He's a chosen instrument. And so, in this text, I do skip over Ananias a little bit, but Ananias departed and entered the house. He did what God told him to do. He says, brother Saul, the time is now. I think God uses us to impact others. Yes, this is a story about Saul. Yes, this is a story about us. But even Ananias, the way Luke is telling this story, the author of this, of this book, the way Luke is telling this story, he doesn't skip over the minor details either. Ananias played a key role. So what do we do? We trust that God's moving. Are you sure, God? Is that really the right move? Is that really the right person? Is that really, is that really how you want this to play out, God? He's moving. 
We trust that God is moving in everything. We also trust that he, no one is too far gone and God is actually moving in those people's lives who appear from our perspective to be enemies from the church, to be too far gone, to be beyond grace, beyond saving. We trust that he's moving in their lives and we move. He's in control. And we go to the people who he is in complete control of and we talk about what we love. Are you sure, God? I mean, I know his reputation. I know who this guy is. Are you sure? God's moving. And we move. And then our last point, the last verse of this passage just fires me up. Verse 31 says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. They had peace. Shortly before this, Saul is wreaking havoc. There is no peace. People are literally running for their lives, an experience I have never quite had to do. I don't imagine it's too fun. They're running for their life, continuing to share the gospel, continuing to preach about Jesus. As they go and run for their lives, they're preaching about Jesus. I would imagine there's an element of fear, simultaneously confidence, but an element of fear. And as they go, Saul's transformed. He begins encouraging the church, and God builds his church. The gospel has made it to Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Whew. What seemed like an impossible task to get the gospel out beyond Jerusalem, out beyond, no one is ever going to buy this. This is crazy that Jesus is risen, Lord. How, Jesus is the Son of God. How is anyone going to believe this? Not only are they believing it, they're being built up. They have peace. And they have comfort of the Holy Spirit. God's always moving among us. At RCC, does anyone, uh, as you guys look at the world, does it ever feel like um, there's not a lot of peace or comfort? I do. Uh, I stopped looking at the news for the most part, <laughs> but uh, there, it's, it's, it's a lot of you should be more terrified. There are bad things happening, and so I try and be aware. But a lot of the times I open my phone and I'm looking through Instagram or uh, news channels, news apps, whatever. I do not exclusively get my news from Instagram, I want to clarify. But I'm looking through the news and it just looks terminal. Like, how is anything ever going to get better? Everyone hates the church now. It's bad to say you're even evangelical. You're not allowed to say this. God's moving to bring us comfort and peace. And what else is he doing? He's building his church. I love this summary statement. So the church is being built up and it multiplied. God used the persecutor of the church, the guy who's wreaking havoc, to now be one of the primary encouragers, one of the primary catalysts to building up the church and encouraging the church. God has taken someone so far from himself, so far from the love of God, and brought him to a place. Brought him to a place where he's one of the guys who is an icon of our faith, a rock star of our faith, completely transformed. This text hits me in a way where I'm, A, encouraged to go and continue to love and pursue the people who are far from God, but at the same time, knowing that that was me. Knowing full well that it is me who is so far from God until I met Jesus until I began treasuring him and my life was transformed from a kid who knew theology and stuff 
to now someone who can continue and align with the mission and purpose of God that he has for me and for you. So we move. We move, trusting that no one is outside of God's transforming power. Pray with me. God, thanks for your goodness. Thank you for being present here with us today. Thank you for being present in our lives and in the lives of those that we get to go love you in front of. God, encourage us as we go, just as you encouraged the early church that no one was too far gone. Encourage us in those R3 relationships that always feel like setbacks. It always feels like we, we were further than this. God, encourage us to continue pursuing people for your name. God, encourage us as we go. Help us reflect on our own lives and the grace that we've been given. God, remind us how far we were from you and how good you are to have brought us near to you. And we pray this all for your glory, for our joy. Amen.